Welcome this morning, everybody. It's so good just to be able to gather together in our houses under a blanket with the heat on as high as it'll go before what I'm told is the rolling blackouts will start today because Texas was not built for this, everybody. Hey, so what we're going to do today, we just had a couple songs of worship. We're going to take communion at the end because... Normally, we try to have some interactive parts of our service, whether you're in service or at home. And so today, as we end our service, wherever we're at, we want to take communion together and remember that we're in this together. And so if you would, search through your house and just maybe right now take a couple seconds. You can pause the live stream if you want to, or you can be quick about it and grab something bread-like and grab something juice-like, or you can even reduce it farther. Grab a a carbohydrate and grab something liquid, everybody. And at the end of the service today, we're going to take communion together. So we're going to give you a couple seconds just to do that right now. So today as we gather together, no matter where we're at, we start like we always do at CBC. We say it every week that we live in a really critical culture. And right here, right now, wherever you're watching this, whatever time of day, we know that God's going to speak to us. Because the God that we serve, the God that we follow, the God that we worship is near and he's active. And he's changing our world through his people. And so we're going to put aside the spirit of criticism and criticalness. And what we're going to do is ask the simple question, God, how are you speaking to me today? Holy Spirit, how are you causing me to see the goodness of God new today? So we're going to take just a couple seconds. I'm going to pray. I'll ask that you pray as well. And just ask that the Holy Spirit do a work in your spirit this morning as we get ready to learn about Jesus today. So pray with me. God, I'm thankful that we can be here. I'm thankful that we can be reminded today that you are good. I'm thankful that we can open up some stories and talk about Jesus because he's always worth talking about. As we read through a story in Matthew 8 this morning, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Convict us and encourage us and show us more of the goodness of God today. If you're comfortable, I'd ask that you take the next 10 or 15 seconds and you say a prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit might do a work in your spirit. I also ask that you pray for me, that I might do an adequate job talking about the goodness of God today, and that God might use my words in preparation to further promote his kingdom and his glory and his fame.
pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, wherever you're at, amen. We are in Matthew chapter 8 this morning. Just right off the top, there are passages that are going to make us go, yes, I'm so excited, God is so good. And then there are passages that are harder. We're in the middle of a series that talks about a kingdom that doesn't just say words, but actually leads to action. And not any action, action that delivers, action that brings about positive change that we want to see in the world. Jesus just got done talking about his picture of what kingdom is in the Sermon on the Mount. And then he walks down and he starts healing people. And we're in this two-chapter arc where basically he's going to give you 10 healings and say, this is me not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. And we've looked at him healing a leper, and we looked at him healing a a servant from the dead, and we've seen him heal a mother-in-law because everybody can be healed. We've seen him do amazing things. And so naturally today we're going to talk about what that means for us. Today what we're talking about is the difference between being a fan of something and being a follower of something. Because there's a distinct difference. I'm a fan of a lot of things. I'm a fan of good food. I'm a fan of sports. This last year, during the bubble and the pandemic, when sports were ripped away from my world, I became a fan of the Dallas Stars because they got to the Stanley Cup, everybody. I was watching every single game. You know how many Stars games I've watched previously in this year? Zero. But I was a fan of the Dallas Stars. We are fans of things in our culture. When you think about it, We are a culture that creates this fanhood or fandom all the time. There's a documentary that just got released on HBO, I think, and I think it's called something like Fake Fame. Did you know that you can go online and you can buy fans for your social media account? You can spend 10 bucks and buy 1,000 fans on Instagram followers. You can spend money and buy fans of almost all the things you do. We're a culture that doesn't just like being fans of things. We promote being fans of things. That's what social media is all about. Like this thing and follow this thing and retweet this thing so you can increase either your personal fandom or I can find other things that I want to be a fan of. And here, here's where that matters is because it doesn't stop when we talk about Jesus. I'm a fan of Jesus. I hope you are too. There's a Lutheran pastor I follow, and she said that of all the people she's come in contact with that have left the church, not one is left because of Jesus. And that's an indictment on the people in the church that is a lack of grace in a lot of different ways, that is a hard thing to hear, but it also speaks about a God who's good, about Jesus who walks on a mountain and says, let me paint the picture of the world that I want to create right here and right now. Of a Jesus who said amazing things like, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Or he said other things like, don't let your hearts be troubled, trust God, trust me. These coffee cup verses that we can all get behind. Remember the one where he says, a new commitment I give you to love your neighbor as yourself? Or even the golden rule of all rules, you should do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We can all get behind those verses. I love that they create a fanhood of Jesus. Here's the problem. Is that fanness you want to say that only takes us so far. We're fans of things that help us, that benefit us, that sound really good. That's why the health and wealth gospel sells. Because preachers get up there and they tell you that if you follow in a certain way, God's in it to bless you. That's why people follow and fall in love with the idea that God is in us for your best good and your prosperity. And those sometimes are two different things. I'm a fan of a lot of things, but there is a difference fundamentally between being a fan of something and being a follower of something. I was a fan 
of the stars when they were in the Stanley Cup. The NHL season just started back up. I think they played, I don't know, five or six or eight games. You know why? I don't know. I haven't watched any of them. <laughs> I'm no longer a fan because the cost of taking away from my time and probably the Mavericks games and the other things I like more is too much to give. We're fans of a lot of things, but there's a distinct difference between being a fan of something and a follower of something. You know who I'm a follower of? The Cowboys. I just don't have to say anything else right there. You get the pain in my voice and in my eyes. I'm a follower of the Cowboys. And what we do is when we don't distinguish between fan and follower, sometimes, sometimes we miss out on what Jesus really calls us to do, what he's calling us to be. Because Jesus said coffee cup mantras and verses that were amazing and true and beautiful and good, but he also said some really hard things that challenge us. The same God that says, love people like you want to be loved, said, you you can't serve both God and money. I have yet to see that on a coffee cup in Starbucks when you're sitting there drinking your $7 cup of coffee that doesn't taste like coffee. That's why it's so expensive. It's the same Jesus who says that you shouldn't worry. But he also says, hey, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's tax season. Go worship and pay your taxes. We don't frame it like that. He says these things that are harder than simply love people or treat people well or here's something that's easy for you to do that it's easy to be a fan of. At one point, he had this ruler come to him and, and the guy said, what do I need to do for eternal life? And Jesus says, sell everything you have and follow me. Those either don't fit on coffee mugs or they make us uncomfortable so we don't print them on coffee mugs. Jesus says some things that make us fans, but he calls us to be followers and there's a difference. Or here's one of my favorites. It's from our text this morning. He says, let the dead bury the dead. When somebody says, can I go bury my dead? That seems incredibly harsh. See, fundamentally, here's the truth. I'm I'm a fan of a lot of things, but I'm a follower of far less because it asks far more of me. There's a difference between being a fan and being a follower. Jesus asks for followers. And today in our text, what we're going to do today is we're going to see why. We're going to see the difference between the two. And we're going to ask the question, are we fans or are we followers of Jesus? Because he calls us to be followers. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 8, verse 18. Let me just read the beginning of it. He says, now when Jesus saw a large crowd around him, He gave orders to go to the other side of the lake. If you're tracking with this sermon series and you're reading with us each and every week, you find that now Jesus walks off the mountain. We talked about it. He does these miraculous things. And so crowds start to follow because when you heal people and raise people from the dead and restore relationships in situations where they had been taken away, like in the case of the leper, when you do that, people start gathering around you. Because we all got problems <laughs> that we'd love to be solved. And Jesus was a solver of problems. And so naturally, large crowds pushed around him. And, and just as a quick aside, I need to take a minute and say, this is the moment when Jesus says, hey, I know there's a lot of fans in the crowd, but what I want is something deeper and something more. And that in and of itself is a really hard thing to do. I haven't been in leadership that long, and this isn't a megachurch, so I have no idea what it's like to be recognized at Starbucks or be you know, on stage enough to have people say that they're fans of me. It's not about that. Here's what I know, though. Friends of mine that have and stories of mine where I've seen leaders fall, it's usually because when people are fans of you, it's pretty easy to be a fan of yourself. And pretty quickly, you forget why you're doing what you're doing. <laughs> you start buying into the hype of you because everybody else has. And that's when leaders of all professions go wrong. 
It's been a hard week for the church. We've had a couple leaders fall. And, and it's a reminder right here, right now, when I read this, the difference between Jesus and leaders is that Jesus never falls for the hype of himself. Over and over again, he says, I'm going to heal you, but go and don't tell. He has a crowd gathered around. He's going to have two men come up to him and said, can we follow you? And he says, you don't know what it takes to follow me. He calls him out right then and right there. And what he does is he doesn't get caught up in the popularity of fandom. He says, I'm here so that people might follow me and see the cause that I came here for in the first place. It's a deeper level of commitment. Jesus can ask for followers because he never lost sight of his mission in the first place, which is so Hard to do when you have crowds of people following you. He never does. And so in the middle of a week that's caused some church leaders to question leadership in general, and I'm sure you've been let down by leaders before, I'm simply reminded that Jesus is different. And I need him to be. (laughs) I need him to be. So these guys come up to Jesus, this crowd of people is gathering around him, and he looks at his disciples and he says, go to the other side of the lake. And then a man approaches him. He says, an expert in the law came and said to Jesus, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Just as a quick aside, when we get that language of follow, especially in Matthew's gospel, it's steeped in Jewish tradition and in Jewish nuance. That, that word follow is literally the job of a disciple. When somebody says to a rabbi, which Jesus was, I want to follow you. What they're meaning is I want to be your disciple. There's a phrase called the dust of the rabbi. And what that meant was, if you were a disciple of a rabbi, you were covered in their dust because wherever they went, wherever they went, you were never far enough away so the dust could always hit you before it settled back on the ground. The dust of the rabbi was what defined a disciple. And so when this man comes up and says, I want to follow you, he's literally asking to be Jesus' disciple in the context of discipleship, which is how they grew priests in the first century world. Now, another note on that, when Matthew uses the word disciple, he he does it about 75 times in his gospel. And every time he uses the word, what we find is the word is defined by the context. So so I'm a basketball player. Well, I used to be more than I am now. but, But you have to understand that when I say I'm a basketball player, that's defined by what I mean by basketball player. And I used to play a lot more than I play now. And I used to mean it a lot more seriously than I do now. When people asked Jesus to be his disciple, some really meant it and some kind of meant it. That word has a lot of nuance to it and a a broad spectrum of definition in the book of Matthew. And so this scribe, this expert in the law is saying, can I be your disciple? And we figure out the kind of disciple he wants to be by his next question. He says, teacher, can I follow you? And here's just an insight in Matthew, never in Matthew, never in Matthew. Out of all the times that we see the, the word teacher used, have we seen people use the word teacher that followed Jesus with everything they had? In that instance, we get the word Lord or master. When Matthew writes the word teacher here, what he means is this guy sees an accurate depiction of who Jesus is, but not an adequate depiction of all that Jesus is. I was talking to a friend this week. And he's in a a pretty serious relationship and they're having a kid conversation. You know, should we have kids? When will we have kids? And he said, uh, how is it, you know, having kids? You're about to have two kids. He said, I've heard it's tiring. And I said, yeah, yeah, it's exhausting. That is an adequate 
definition of what it means to be a parent of one or two small children. That is absolutely an adequate definition, but, I'm sorry, it's an accurate definition, but it's not all the way adequate. It doesn't fully encapsulate all that I mean when I say it's tiring to be a parent, you know? So this guy looks at Jesus and says, you are a teacher. And for a scribe to say that, by the way, you got to understand what experts in the law were in the first century world. They were religious elites. They were in charge with writing down the history and heritage of their people. They were looked up to and they were revered. People wanted to be them. They were experts in the law. He looks at Jesus and calls Jesus teacher, where normally that's a role he would have taken as a scribe or an expert in the law. He says, teacher, I want to follow you. He came from a religious elite society and say, I I want what you have. And Jesus looks at this man and says, you have no idea what it means to follow me. And so he answers in kind of an interesting way. He says, foxes have dens, birds in the sky have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. When it says lay his head there, It doesn't mean that Jesus literally didn't have beds and he didn't have a place to sleep and he slept outside. We see throughout the Gospels that Jesus crashed with friends. He's the ultimate Airbnb dude. He crashed with friends and with family members. He was an itinerant preacher. When it says that he had nowhere to lay his head, it means he didn't own property. It means he literally didn't have a house that was just his house. So you have this religious elite member of society saying, can I follow you? And Jesus says, you don't understand what it looks like to follow me. It's so much different than what your life is like right now. One commentator said, Jesus was devoid of all middle-class security. And when Jesus gives the answer, he says, the son of man has no place to lay his head. When he's talking about that, that son of man is a phrase Jesus uses about himself. He uses it, give or take, 70 times in the Gospels. And every time we see it, Jesus is saying it, except for two times where people are quoting Jesus saying it. And that that phrase, son of man, is really interesting because what it does is it bonds together this messianic purpose and messianic promise and mortal idea. What it does is it ties together the son of God and the manness of Jesus. I come with this power to heal, but also I am human and I am frail and I will suffer. I'm not exempt from that. It's the perfect combination of who Jesus was and what he came to do. And so often we skip right over the manness and we we buy right into the godness because it's easy to be a fan of that. And so when he talks about being a son of man, he means that I am messianic. I bring the promise of all things God, but I'm also here. And it's not as easy as it looks. What we see with this scribe and what Jesus is saying is you have no idea the comfort you have to give up if you're going to follow me. And I don't think you're ready for it. One author said, Potential disciples often long for the glory associated with following Jesus and forget the deprivation that may often precede it. Here's why I love this story today for us. I love it because we're going to meet two men and they're going to be challenged to give up a couple things that they didn't think about before they said, Jesus, can I be your disciple? And I think it hits right in the heart of where we are too. So the first is a scribe, and he says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, you don't understand. That's not the comfortable thing to do. You have no idea what it is to follow me. It is not comfortable like you know it. I don't think you're ready for it. It's funny, when we talk about us, even in a pandemic year, even in canceling all the things, even in changes that we didn't see coming, what I find really interesting is, as Americans specifically, our love for comfort There is a French philosopher and economist, and his name was Alex de Tocqueville, and he came to the States in 1831. 
He actually was going to do some research on the penal system in America, and it's the first time he'd been here. America was still relatively new at that point in the global scene, and you couldn't really just like pop on a flight and go to and fro. It took a little while, and your life was kind of at risk when you got on the boats and went across the sea. So he did. And he actually came back, and, and he, he didn't just write a paper on the penal system. He wrote a, a two-book series on the democracy in America. And, and what he did, was, it was called Democracy in America. He wrote it in 1835, and it has never been out of print since. And why is because for the first time, it clued in Europeans on what it was like to be in, to live in America. One author uh, that wrote about the book, that's how you know you get a good book if authors write about the book you wrote. He said, with its trenchant observations on equality and individualism, Tocqueville's work remains a valuable explanation of America to Europeans and of Americans to themselves. Sometimes it takes a third party coming in to see what we can't see. In his book, he has a whole chapter. He has a whole chapter on what he calls the taste for material well-being in America. And, and Tocqueville notes this, I quote, Minds are universally preoccupied, preoccupied with meeting the body's every need and attending to life's little comforts. This was in 1835. He came to America, and you know what he noticed? We like comfort. <laughs> He was French. We like comfort. I think it's built into our DNA. And this is way before AC was popular everywhere, way before the internet, and way before Snuggies were ever invented, which like typify what comfort is. He said, we have an inclination towards comfort. And, and I could pick so many things to look at what that looks like and how we love comfort. You probably know it. You can look at two things just in general. One is air conditioning and two is clothing. You know, air conditioning was made at the turn of the 20th century, about 1902, simply because they wanted to stop humidity from ruining printing presses and papers. And then over time, it gradually grew, and now we can live in Dallas, Texas, because, thank God, AC is here. And it went from not being popular or common to now, um, rising to where about 93% of everybody in this country has an AC unit. It's one of the most shocking things that I find when I take other people outside of this country. I used to lead mission trips, and I'd take college kids. And there was one trip where we went to Romania, and two things they noticed. One is they wanted ice water, and it's really hard to find. And two, we'd get to these rooms, and they were nicer than the rooms that anybody else stayed in. And the first thing they said was, where's the air conditioning? I said, we don't have air conditioning. And you would have thought they would have got on the next jet home. <laughs> it's just because it's what we're accustomed to, because air conditioning makes things comfortable. There is one history professor from the University of London, and he says, basic needs may appear basic at one point in time, but they were luxuries for the previous generations. Or you can take our idea of style or clothing. There's a woman who wrote a book called Dress Casual, the American College Students Redefined American Style. And we can go into this for a while, but basically she just says that now we dress down uh, more than we ever used to. She said, according to a 2016 survey of more than 40,000 business professionals across the globe by workspace provided by Regis, 74%, 74% of respondents believed that a suit and tie were too formal for the modern workplace. 79% felt that jeans were suitable for the office, and 51% said t-shirts were. And 43% of people who worked from home said they sometimes worked in their pajamas. 20% in their underwear. Just think about that for a second. That's pre-COVID, everybody. 
We're going to come back to work and it's just going to be everybody in their sweaters and their sweatpants and we're going to call that good. She went on to say, I love this quote. She went on to say that clothing is the incarnation of culture in what we wear. It's what we value. We value comfort. And I don't have to prove that to you. Post-pandemic, go walk into an airport and see what people fly in, you know? You've been there, I've been there. It's the, the idea that we love comfort above most other things. Jesus looks at this scribe and he says, you're not ready to be a follower of me because you're not ready to give up comfort in order to follow me. One writer put it like this. He said, the disciple does not understand that follow means Gethsemane and Golgotha and the tomb. In a culture that creates fan, we typically gravitate towards the king aspect and less the humanity and the suffering aspect of following Jesus. But followers of Jesus find Christ more important than our comfort. That's what Jesus is saying to this scribe. And it's hard because as a church, we want people to be comfortable. It's part of what we do. But the question we have to ask is what's drawing us to Jesus? Is it the comfort of the church and the programs and the system and the ACs and the music and the stream this from home? Or is it Jesus himself? And if those things are taken away, is Jesus still enough? Is he still enough? So the first thing that Jesus does is he finds this man, he says, I want to be a follower of you. And Jesus says, will you still follow me if you have to give up the comfort you know and love? And as Americans, we have to ask that same question. But then he hits it again. The next man comes up and says, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Okay, that is, it's a harsh verse. We have to understand something. Jesus is making a point here. And what we can't do, what I, what I dislike when anyone does, me included, is when we take little bits of a larger section and then we try and pretend like this little bit says the whole thing. Context sets the stage for everything we do. So we need to take things in context. My daughter recently has found a new favorite phrase. I hope it's not a favorite. But if she doesn't get what she wants, she will look at me and say, I don't love you, Dad. Just out of the blue, a gut punch right to my emotional core. And she doesn't mean that at all. What she means is, I wanted the lollipop. You didn't give it to me. I'm not very happy right now. You have to understand things in context. So this man comes up to Jesus and he says, I want to bury my dad. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. And you have to understand a couple things so we can understand what he means here. One, you can't read this and think that Jesus doesn't love family. God in God, God created the idea of and the structure of family. God is the biggest fan of the family structure. He actually used those words to define his people. We are family. That's what we're going to be like. That's how we love each other. And in a culture that was more family oriented than we are, it had much more weight than even you or I are thinking right now. Family was a big deal. So Jesus is not saying here that I don't value family. That goes against the very character of God that we see everywhere else. And so if we unpack this a little bit more, I think a couple things. Uh, one, actually, I think that, that when this man's asking the question that his dad's not even actually passed away yet. A couple things we know if you read the Old Testament. You're not supposed to touch dead things if you're a priest. You have to show up and do your rites on certain days. And you get exemptions for all those things if your family dies. Because family takes priority all throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament law that God gave his people, even in the first century world here. So God values family. And in the first century world, if your father died, you would 
do everything you could to arrange the funeral. You would mourn for three or four days and then you'd sit and just sit for seven days. Here's the point is if this guy's father actually died, he would have no time. He would have no place. He would have no purpose being there listening and asking Jesus a question. So when we dig down a little deeper, what, what I think he's doing here is he's saying, hey, when my dad dies, I want to be able to bury him. And he take it a step farther in that context and culture. If your dad died, the immediate family actually came back a year later and put your bones in a vase and put it on a ledge in your family burial plot in your tomb. And so what this man is asking is not, my dad's dead, please let me go bury him. I think what he's saying is, I want to follow you after my dad dies and I get time to do what I want to do. There's actually a semantic idiom, another way to interpret this. And he's saying, instead of I must first bury my father, he says, let me wait until my father needs to be buried and then I'll follow you. The first man we see is saying, I want to follow you when it's comfortable. The second man is saying, I want to follow you when it's convenient. I'm not ready quite yet. You have a minute? It reminds me, my best friends in high school. And we're talking about Jesus in high school. And I think I was a sophomore or a junior. And like everything, I I struggled with Jesus. Like I wanted to follow him. But in my high school self, I was wrong. I thought that following Jesus was the killer of fun. How I defined fun in high school, I was wrong. And I remember him sitting on this kid's bed because he asked me a question. I was like, that makes a lot of sense. I don't have an answer for it. And, and he said, well, if this Jesus thing is real and we just had to ask him into our hearts and we'll be forgiven, I'm just going to do that when I'm about to die. That way I can do what I want to do. And then when I'm ready, I can just start following Jesus. Two things there. One, it's a misnomer of what it actually means to follow Jesus. Jesus is good enough and big enough to be better than just a heaven answer for you. It's a right here, right now, kingdom unfolding thing that we're seeing as he's walking and talking. But two... I think fundamentally what he's saying here is Jesus going to say to this guy, you don't get to follow me when it's convenient for you. Followers of me follow me all the time. There's one commentator that said the claims of the kingdom are absolute and immediate. And so Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. And he's being facetious a bit because he cares for families, but he's also getting the point across that it's not about following me when it's convenient for you. It's so much bigger than that, don't you see? And you're not willing to because you are still number one in your life. I was listening to a podcast a little while ago and and somebody made a statement that I thought might resonate a little bit more for us instead of let the dead bury their dead. They said they were talking about sports culture in America and how there's no sacred places anymore and how we have sports on all days of the week. And when I was growing up, we didn't. And they said, you know, uh, they said soccer is not a good reason to miss church on Sundays, but church is a great reason to skip soccer. (laughs) And I thought, wow, that is hard to hear a little bit. And I'm not here to say soccer is a bad thing at all. I'm not here to say it's bad on Sundays. It's not at all. The question that gets to the heart of the matter is, what is your value system and your priority? I'm bringing the kingdom of God. That's why when this story is told in Luke's gospel, he takes it a step farther. And he says, if you're going to follow me, but you won't leave your family, you can't be my follower. And again, Jesus loves family. 
He says, you must love me more than your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, even more than your own life. He demands greater affection towards himself because he claims a supreme position and a supreme level of attention in our lives. He's saying, this is what a follower is. It's somebody that's not concerned with their comfort over me and somebody that's not concerned with their convenience over me. And this is why I like this passage. Because as Americans, there's nothing more we love than comfort and convenience. And so I've talked about how we liked comfort, but you know what we like probably even more than comfort is convenience. Go on Google right now and just look up how much fast food we eat. We don't eat fast food because it's better unless it's Chick-fil-A. We eat fast food because it's easier, even though we know that it's literally killing us. Even though we know that diabetes are increasing and obesity is increasing, we eat fast food because it's easier for us. <coughs> That's why we're a culture of Hot Pockets and Easy Mac, because the regular Mac was too difficult to make in the first place. We love convenience. That's why the biggest company in the world sells it to you. You can get whatever you want in two days. Now it's less than that. We're a culture that values and loves convenience. And we're willing to live with less quality for more convenience. As I feed my daughter microwave chicken nuggets and Easy Mac most nights of the week, I know what this feels like. But Jesus says, you want to know one of the differences between fans and followers? They keep going even when it's not convenient for them. So here's the whole point and purpose. With all of this, I, I, wonder, I wonder in the current cultural moment we're in how much we're fans of Jesus or how much we're actual followers of Jesus. Because if we only follow Jesus when we want to and when it feels good, I wonder what we're really following, Jesus or ourselves. I wonder if we're simply fine with just being fans of Jesus. Because he seems to tell us that he wants more than just people being fans. He wants followers. And so he says to his disciples, he says to these people that are asking, he says, I want you to follow me. And that's how he starts this whole thing in the first place. He says, at the beginning, you're going to get in a boat and go to the other side of the lake. I love that he doesn't give more definition than that. I love that he doesn't say to this point. I love that he says, get and go, because the purpose wasn't the destination. It was the man that they went with. The purpose wasn't the situation. It was the savior that they came to follow. The purpose of followers of Jesus is just that, following Jesus. Because over time, here's what we find, over time when comfort and convenience are challenged, fans fall off, but followers keep going. Jesus calls us to be followers. And so this text is not about salvation. This text is not about did these two guys follow Jesus or burn in hell, even though we like to teach every story in the gospel like that in the United States in our current church context. This culture is about, this, this story is about something bigger than that. It's about what Jesus wants for his followers. It's about us realizing that following Jesus might sacrifice some comforts and will sacrifice some convenience. Because he had all these crowds gathered around him. He had all these people that wanted to just be near him and be healed. And he says, you don't understand what I came to do because I'm not going to sell out. I'm going to remain faithful to the mission and the mission gets difficult. And if you're not willing to persevere through, then you're not a follower of mine. You might be a fan of Jesus, and that's great. I'm a fan of Jesus. But there's something more beautiful than being a fan. It's a follower. Something greater than simply liking somebody. It's loving somebody and being willing to persevere. Jesus says, I came so that you might follow me. 
He calls us into something deeper and richer than simply liking the words that we like, but loving the man that saved us. And so the question we have this morning, the whole point of this story in the middle of the hype that is surrounding Jesus as it's going to continue to grow is him saying, I'm glad you like what I'm doing, but do you really love me? Are we, are you, am I, are we fans of Jesus or are we followers? When following Jesus costs us something, do we keep going or do we give up? And this is, this is not, this is not a feel bad or be shameful. This is not that. Ultimately what this is, is us saying, if Jesus is the best good, if his kingdom is the best picture of what life can be, are we willing to work for it? Because here's what I know in my 37 years of living is that things that are truly good are worth working for. Things that are truly valuable need us to sacrifice. They cost something. So Jesus says to these two people, I don't want just fans, I want followers, and that's gonna cost you some comfort and it's gonna cost you some convenience. Are we fans, are we followers? It was hard. Is it in our current context? We don't live in a world that's completely antithetical to the claims of Christ. We don't even in the South live in a culture that doesn't like Jesus. There are other places you can go where if you tell people you're a Christian, you're going to get met with maybe not a kind word. That's probably not the case in Flower Mound, Double Oak, Dallas. People will probably say, oh yeah, me too. I grew up in this church. And so when we say that Jesus might make you uncomfortable or right, remove comfort from your life or inconvenience you. We're not saying go out of your way and find it. We're simply saying when it comes, don't back off of following because that is what Jesus promises is going to happen. And so we don't live in a culture where we have some missionaries that we, su- that we support here and they can't tell us where they're at and they can't tell us what they're doing because if people find them bad, things happen to them. That's inconvenient and it's uncomfortable. So one, I, I just praise God for the fact that I live here. That I could get on a stage and throw this out through the interwebs so the four or five of you can watch this thing and, and I can feel good about what we're doing because God has been gracious enough to let me be born in this country. I do say that when inconvenience comes, and it will, oftentimes we run from that because we think something's wrong and Jesus says, that's just what it means to follow me in the first place. And what's hard is much like the man who said, hey, I want to be there for my father. It's usually not between right and wrong, although sometimes it is. A lot of times it's between what's good and what's better. Jesus is saying I'm better. I was talking to a friend this week and I simply asked, how, how are we uncomfortable for Jesus? And, and they told me, they said, you know, at one point in my life, I had a lot of things going on. I had small kids and I was leading two Bible studies and I was working and it just got to be too much. And I had to give something up. And most people said, hey, give up one of the Bible studies. God loves you. You're still fine grace. And this person said, so I gave up TV. I love TV. I gave up TV. (laughs) Was it uncomfortable? Yeah. Did I want to do it? Yeah. Was it more inconvenient? Yes. But it was worth it. I remember growing up, growing up my family, actually, we used to pick up this one girl on the way to church every week and bring her to church. Was it inconvenient? Yes. Was I a little punk kid that told my parents we didn't have to do this? Probably. Did we have to leave earlier? Yeah, we did. But is that inconvenience worth it for the call of Christ? Yeah, it is. Because what we follow, we truly love. (laughs) I took one away from sports, parents and families. Let me give you one back. It's why that even right now, and it's negative two degrees outside, that if your kid had a soccer game, you'd probably be out there in all the coats and all the jackets. Because you're not just fans of your kids. (laughs) You follow them. That's a beautiful thing because it shows value. So I guess 
when we talk about what this means for you and me, it means we sit down and we say, how, how is Jesus? How is Jesus challenging my comfortability? And how is he inconveniencing me? And if he never is, I'd ask the question, who are you following? Maybe that looks like we serve. Maybe it looks like we give. Maybe it looks like we pick somebody up on the way to church. Maybe that looks like we have conversations that might be tough and maybe awkward. Maybe, maybe that looks like some of those things. But simply put, Jesus is saying, this is the difference between fans and followers. Fans peace out when their comfort's shaken and they're inconvenienced. Followers don't. They persevere. Here's what I love about this. So at the end of the day, people do follow causes. And we follow Jesus because Jesus stood for the best cause. This cause that reconciled God and man. This cause that said there's a better way to live. This cause that says love is better than anger and hate. This cause that said there is good in this world. This cause that said it's going to cost me everything I have, but you are worth it because I love you. We follow Jesus because he never lost sight of the cause. And in that, he said, they're going to treat you like they treat me. It's not going to be easy all the time. But this is what I know. This is what followers do. When you persevere through the hard times, what people see is the beauty of the cause that you're following in the first place. They see a cause that's bigger than me and more beautiful than me. They see a cause that's worth sacrificing for. So that's why Jesus says, I I don't just want fans. I want followers. That's what the 12 men that followed him did. So they gave up everything to follow him, and they changed the world with the Holy Spirit after that. And why we can follow Jesus is because he walked all the way to the garden and to Gethsemane and to Golgotha. He walked to the tomb and said, I'm willing to sacrifice for you, and that's inconvenient. <laughs> and that was not comfortable, but you're worth it. And so we live out something that he did for us. He says, I'm leading and you can go where I go. I'm not the kind of leader that says, you go over there, I'm going to go rest on the, on the sidelines. So as we end today, as we wrap up, we're going to take communion together and we're going to remember that following Jesus will challenge our comforts and it will inconvenience us. But the cause is worth it. And we want to push beyond just being fans, especially in a culture that is increasingly more hostile to the claims of Jesus. And maybe we do things on Sunday mornings or whenever we do church that we don't want to. Waking up early is really difficult sometimes. We want to be followers of Jesus so that people see the beauty of Jesus. That's what Jesus did. He showed us the beauty of how much God loves us when he went to the cross. And so find your communion elements and Every time we take this together, every single time, what we do is we remember the bigger story of the gospel. We remember the beauty and the breadth of the gospel. We remember that Jesus' cause was good. And his cause was you and me as he died for us. And when we take communion together, we remember that we're not just fans of Jesus. We're followers of it. And so he sat with his disciples on the night that he went to the cross. And he grabbed a piece of bread And he said, eat, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body, which will be shed for you. And he took the cup. He said, this is my blood that will be spilled for you. Every time you have this meal, remember that I was inconvenienced. (laughs) made uncomfortable because I loved you. 
drink and remember. May we be followers of Jesus. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful for all that you did. I'm thankful that you call us into a pursuit of you that goes beyond our preferences, that shows the bigger picture of the gospel. Oh, God who loves us and is willing to sacrifice for it. Might we live in such a way so that people see that story? Give us places and spaces where we can push past being simply fans and move into a place where we can truly follow you and we can celebrate that together. Because as we celebrate a God who died for us, as we celebrate a God who's made it uncomfortable for us, as we celebrate that God, we see exactly why you're worthy of following in the first place. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We love you. We appreciate you. Let's be followers of Jesus. Have a great Sunday.